Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Ladies and gentlemen, what an honor to bring together a meeting of two great minds and a podcast host that makes three people. Yes, I am joined by Dr. Ron Sinha, former guest when we talked about uh, covesity, the COVID-19 and the association with aerobic conditioning and your disease risk. And Dr. Phil Maffetone, another wonderful former guest, the master of aerobic training, fat adapted endurance training. And this is sort of a confluence between the work of Dr. Sinha on the front lines, taking care of a lot of metabolic disease patients in California's Silicon Valley and the great work of Dr. Maffetone, uh, emphasizing the training heart rate of MAF, that's the 180 minus your age formula, to exercise at a comfortable pace and burn maximum fat calories instead of drifting into the high-stress workout patterns that can deter many an enthusiastic, well-intentioned exerciser. So we're going to talk about an assortment of different topics, starting with the importance of the math heart rate and how Phil came to develop that formula, the successful introduction of anaerobic high-intensity exercise, how to do it right instead of burning out and falling apart because you're reading articles about HIT and how awesome it is and you go in and push yourself too much, and finally transitioning uh, to an interesting end where uh, both of them talk about their fondness for music and the importance of following your passions, having a creative outlet to kind of balance the core daily responsibilities. And Phil tells a great story about how he was awakened one day with a message from from above to pursue a career in music out of nowhere. Amazing stuff from both these guys. You're going to love the uh, intense interaction. Not too sciencey, so I think you're going to get a lot out of it. An easy listen and perhaps a great episode to share with family, friends, loved ones who are thinking of starting an exercise program or want to get out of that risk category for metabolic disease. Dr. Ron Sinha at culturalhealthsolutions.com and Dr. Phil Maffetone at philmaffetone.com. Enjoy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have the lively trio of Dr. Ron Sinha coming to us from California, Silicon Valley, and Dr. Phil Maffetone from his new home in... Uh, I'm, in uh, I'm in Vermont. Vermont. Oh my nice. gosh, the, the Globetrotter has landed in Vermont. Back it's to not a roots. new home, but it's uh, where I am at the moment, and uh, that's the way it is. That's which all is that really matters. With, nice. yes. That's all that matters with Phil, where he is at the moment. <laughs> And uh, the reason we we wanted to put you two guys in the same uh, in the same box here uh, to talk about the, I guess, the confluence of what you're doing, Doc, in in the real world and in with your patients and then all the great work that Phil's done with his athletes and his, uh, you know, emphasis on aerobic conditioning. Uh, Listeners uh, probably heard Dr. Ron and I talk about how the aerobic conditioning in your health is directly associated with your vulnerability to COVID-19. So with that, man, it's time to, it's time to light these guys up and gain, (laughs) gain tremendous insights. Here we go. 
Yeah, hey, well, this is an awesome honor and a privilege, Brad. Thanks for orchestrating this. But, you know, the way I was thinking about this, Phil, is we've taken sort of opposite paths because I've been dealing with very sedentary, metabolically sick people for many years. And then really coming across your work and really the work of endurance trainers and exercise physiologists, I've realized that my approach to prescribing exercise was very general in the past. I, I liken it to, you know, in India, if you want to get blood pressure medications, you can just go to the corner store and pick it up with a prescription. So literally, the way I prescribed exercise was like telling somebody, you've got high blood pressure, go to the pharmacy and just get your own drugs and take whatever dose you want. That's how general it was. But now fast forward to now, because of the work that you've done, I've become so much more precise in prescribing exercise because there's such a wide range there. And then looking at your journey, you started off with endurance athletes, so I'm doing, just doing world-class training, and now you're dealing with metabolically sick people. So here we are at the intersection of that. So I'm just really look, looking forward to exchanging our experience and our ideas around this. So thanks for making the time for my audience. Likewise, Ron, and thank you. Um, you know, I, another way to put it is that the the athletes I was working with in the beginning of my career, um, and they weren't always athletes, but many of them were, uh, too many of them uh, couldn't, couldn't handle the recommendations, and they became metabolically sick. Mm. Uh, and so here they are today, and it's really – it's sad to see that because um, – you know, you, you start working with an athlete and you expect them to just get better and then keep getting better and, and get, uh, you know, when they retire from professional life, they, they remain healthy, they remain active. And it's so wonderful to see that. And Mark Allen is a, is a great example of that. But unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not always the case. And we, we see those sad cases where people, for whatever reason, deviate, um, and and here they are broken down and uh, just as bad as those couch potatoes who never did anything. Wow, that's you know I want to double click on that. So you're saying some of your highest performing athletes, maybe back in those days before you knew all that, you would think that their performance metrics would be proportional to longevity metrics later on, but it seems like you identified a major discordance between those two. Is that correct? Without a doubt, yeah. Uh, and 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 it was uh, not obvious in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, we're talking about the '70s. There weren't a lot of overfat people. Uh, and and I was starting to see some athletes have a little bit of excess body fat, and we we were able to measure it accurately with a, a a water weight measure, which was really cumbersome to say the least. Um, somewhat accurate if you can exhale and get all that air out of your lungs, uh, but a lot of people couldn't do that. Um, uh, and this whole idea of athletes who were fit but unhealthy came to being as a result of that and that was that hit me when i crossed the finish line in 1980 at the new york city marathon mm. i said wow uh fit but unhealthy you know right that's interesting um and and it answered it answered a lot of questions for me and then of course today uh we see that a lot and paul larson and i wrote a paper called athletes fit but unhealthy published in um uh, uh, front uh, published in Sports Medicine actually a couple of years ago, uh, where we defined health and fitness separately as two two um, two conditions that are, are very very important. And clearly, what we both found was that athletes were willing to sacrifice their health for more 
more speed, more power, uh, more endurance, uh, whatever it took, uh, you know, they wanted. And, and it's like, I mean, movies have been made about, about <laughs> that idea. Right, right. Absolutely. And then, you know, your heart rate formula, I'm going to jump right into this because that's been a game changer in my practice because of the beauty, eloquence and simplicity of this. Um, I was wondering if you can provide for audience just a little bit of background behind, um, you know, coming up with the MAP heart rate formula, if you can provide some perspective around that. And we'll dig deeper into that then afterwards. Sure. I, um, in the beginning, I would evaluate uh, a, a patient, a person, an athlete, whoever I was with um a physical exam a lot of time spent on oral histories which i I really was where it all happens yeah uh, and still does and it's frightening to know that people aren't even doing those anymore right um but i would i would do these extensive uh, evaluations um and by the time i was done with that i had a pretty good idea of where their heart rate should be to be in in that fat burning state but then i went out on the track i would watch the athlete run if they were a runner and um and i would i would monitor their gait and i would compare their gait with their heart rate and as their heart rate went up their gait would go down mm. and well i didn't want the gait to go down so i would find the heart rate that maintained a a, a really good healthy gait and that typically correlated with what I was finding uh, clinically in, 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 my, in my exam room. And um, that became their MAF heart rate, essentially. We didn't call it that, but that became their training heart rate. And, and then the follow-up was important because uh, I didn't have a clear idea yet what, you know, how accurate I was. Um, and so if, if uh, they trained at that rate, uh, and problems uh, didn't go away or problems came back or whatever, we'd adjust it um, accordingly. And and then I was uh, lecturing about this one day and someone said, hey, how can we determine that? And I was totally embarrassed. <laughs> um, at that point, I was so busy. I didn't want more athletes coming to my clinic. So I didn't say, hey, come see me and I'll figure right. it out. I don't stay away. Um, and and I thought the following days that there's got to be a, a, a way mathematically, simply to say, okay, here are the numbers. Let's fiddle around with the numbers with with a bunch of patients, make them correspond to what I was coming up with. In in short, that became the 180 formula. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, I take care of so many engineers and techies, and when I present the formula <laughs> to them, the first thing they ask me is. How, how do you come up with this formula? Like they want the equation and the algorithm. And I think you're just an intuitive person, right? You had a lot of experience and you probably played around with a lot of different variations of the metrics and just came up with this beautiful yeah, formula. And maybe for some of those that don't know what the formula is, if you can just at a high level explain it. So. Yeah, you, you subtract your age from 180, which doesn't mean anything, unlike the <laughs> 220 formula where you subtract your age from 220 and you supposedly have max heart rate, which doesn't apply very often. Um, you subtract your age from 180 and then you find the category that you fit into best from a health standpoint and a fitness standpoint. Are you, are you injured or you're not injured? Are you improving, not improving, getting worse? Do you have asthma, allergies? Uh, are you overfat, normal fat? And, 
that's the personalization part in, in addition to the age. But we're now going to drill down to the health components of this athlete, this person, and the fitness components. And those who are healthier and more fit uh, don't have to lower that heart rate much further, if any. And those who are more unhealthy or, or unfit do have to reduce the, um, the heart rate uh, for training. Otherwise, uh, that training becomes too much of a stress. So if they're on medication, for example, they have to reduce the 180 minus the age by another 10. Right. And so it's a very person, it's, it's how we can personalize, just like I had been doing one-on-one with an individual, how a person can personalize their, their own uh, progress. Yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you're an absolute clinician because you're literally taking a detailed medical history on all of your clients, whether they're athletes or patients, which is something you're right. We don't do nowadays. I've talked to Brad about this in our modern medical system, 10 to 15 minutes per patient. All you can do is hand them a prescription and tell them go exercise more, right? And that's really not doing them any favors. And as a result of following your equation, I found that the vast majority of the patients that I see in my clinic that are really sedentary and insulin resistant already um, just telling them to go out and exercise, what, 95 plus percent are not even within the right zone. They're all, even though they're saying they're doing aerobic exercise, they're all anaerobic. So maybe at a high level, we can discuss the differences between this and the importance of mitochondria. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I noticed that early on in the early years, uh, I actually used the 220 formula initially. Yeah. And and I, I, I was able to show that um, uh, they were exercising at a at a heart rate not much different than if you just said, hey, go out and run. I had people on the track saying, look, you just go go run. Uh, and then you guys who are wearing this crazy cardiac monitor that I started using uh, before the wireless ones came out, I said, um, you know, I want you to do this 220 formula and here's, here's the, the range you need to. They were doing the same thing. They were both, you know, for the most part anaerobic and uh, over – overtraining acutely but didn't didn't know it wouldn't know it yet that's the problem with overtraining is it creeps up on you and by the time you notice it you've done a lot of damage yeah well also athletes of all levels from novice to the elite performing at the highest level uh, if we go by perceived exertion and we have that strong uh, type A goal-oriented mindset where we want to go out there and, and push ourselves a little bit and get a good workout and come back and write it down in the journal, um, you're going to routinely exceed that math heart rate by a significant amount. And it doesn't seem like a big deal because it's not super strenuous. You're not in a, a true uh, intense interval workout. You're just going out there for your usual six-mile jog around the park. And so the real eye-opener for me and for every, everyone who's embraced this dating back for decades since Phil's been talking about it is you really have to slow down and take it easy and realize that uh, a jog walk is actually the appropriate workout even though you have 17 half marathon medals on your wall and you can actually run you know seven minute 48 second pace when you're in a race situation but the training to reduce the everyday stress of the training 
was the true breakthrough. And I, you know, I kind of came to this halfway through my career. We've talked about this so much, Phil, where I, I cornered Mark Allen. I said, why are you beating me by such a great distance when I'm, <laughs> I'm training my brains out every single day? And he said, look, you got to slow down and take it easy on your body so that your body can build and build and develop over time without the interruption that comes from the high stress impact of going a little bit too hard at every single workout. And I'm thinking of Dr. Ron's patients who are well-meaning and trying to get out there and the doctor told them that they need to get on the treadmill or the Stairmaster or whatever. And oh my gosh, if you put a heart rate monitor on them, it would be scary. Yeah. You know, my audience is so hyper-motivated. As you know, Brad, we've talked about this. The higher the number, they're, they're aiming for 4.0 GPAs, actually 5.0 GPAs, right? The, yeah. the, the higher the number, the greater. And they walk into these fitness centers and they see the classic graph over the 220 minus age. And they're all aiming for the 80, 85%. Oh, of yeah. Time, more right? is better. Right? Yep. Yeah, more is always better. And uh, I'm seeing so much damage. I've seen CRP levels, marker for inflammation go up, all these things. But both of you have alluded to someone, Mark Allen, and I know most of my audience would know this. And I want to use this as an opportunity to motivate my patients because my type A execs often tell me that I'm taking the joy out of workouts by basically putting them down here. But I want them to understand that somebody like the legendary Mark Allen, maybe you can give some background behind that so they understand that this is a training protocol you wouldn't just use for sedentary, sick, you know, metabolically unhealthy people, but you're using for the greatest athletes of all times. So. I'd never heard of him either. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there was a guy where I used to live that was a painter and he had a big truck and it said Mark Allen painting on it. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to take a picture and send it to Mark. <laughs> right. Yeah, Mark was, you know, I, I saw Mark for the first time, I think it was 83. Uh, Paul Anubi Frazier had just shown up uh, from South Africa, and they came to, with Colleen Cannon and some others, to my uh, San Diego uh, little traveling clinic that I was doing all over the world. Uh, long weekends where I would lecture about things. We'd go to the track, we'd go to the pool, uh, go out on the bike. Uh, uh, I would individualize things. And that's when I started putting heart monitors on, on these athletes. And uh, with Mark, uh, I, I, I remember quite clearly running around the track at UC, UCSD. Uh, and he was wearing this big bulky heart monitor. And I said, yep, this is the pace you want to be at. And he said, this is the pace. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it was like an eight, 820 pace or something, you know, which was two minutes slower than he was used to doing. And, you know, the next morning he came in and uh, I think he had gone for a, ra a run on the, on the roads, you know, where there were some up and downs and he was more like nine minutes a mile average and um uh typical typical story um we occasionally see people who actually can maintain a, a fast pace that they're used to but almost everyone has to really really back off uh quite a bit and then they gradually get faster and faster and then they start complaining that they're running too fast what can i do i'm running too fast are oh, you running <laughs> faster at the same heart rate and now you're so it, it's a wonderful thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, one thing I want to ask you both is, you know, what I used to do in the early days too was really focus on using my breathing as sort of a rough surrogate marker. 
But I've been nasal breathing for a long time because I grew up with a father that taught me these Ayurvedic breathing techniques. And I find that even nasal breathing, it's become very popular and fashionable now with James Nestor's book about breathe. But I find that nasal breathing is not a good indicator for me as well, too. I find my heart rate going up quite a bit. So are there any other rough, I know we hate the word hacks, but any rough shortcuts beyond knowing your heart rate that you're aware of? I've tried to use them all. And I've yeah. not found any. Uh, the uh, breathing thing works great sometimes if you are really good at nasal breathing, which most people are not, despite all the hours people are are putting in. Um, I, I think we need we need uh, objectivity, and the heart rate is a very objective measure. Yeah. It's a a great biofeedback tool, and so uh, perceived exertion, uh, like you mentioned, Brad, that that. That went out the window, you know, when I was in college. Uh, oh, you mean they're using the perception of how you might feel? Um, uh, the, you know, what kind of measure? I, I love measuring things. And when you measure things, the, your purpose is to be objective, as objective as we can be with humans. And uh, heart rate is a great objective tool. And whether we find the, the exactly right heart rate MAF heart rate or not is really um, almost uh, secondary. What's important is can you progress at that heart rate that you're training at? In other words, if you're training, if your MAF heart rate is 140, um, uh, can you, a month later are you getting faster at 140 heart rate, or are you mm-hmm. pushing more power at 140 heart rate than you were a month previous? And if you're not, something's wrong. Right, and so that's really what it comes down to. That objective, that's called the MAF test. That objective MAF test uh, evaluation that really takes the guesswork out of the workout. So when people hit that plateau, what are I know there's multiple causes, but again, looking at our average sedentary person that doesn't have a very fit foundation, when they hit that plateau, what are like some of the top three or four reasons why they're not really making progress beyond that? Well, probably the the top one is is fine. Uh, <laughs> they're saying was, they're training aerobically, and then I, oh, I, I usually wear my watch, and otherwise I can really tell that I'm at the right <laughs> number. So that number one is lying, and then number two, <laughs> Phil will discuss. <laughs> the foods are the are are really uh, number one uh, because if you don't if if you're eating refined carbohydrates, mm. you're impairing fat burning, and you could train all you want properly or not you're not going to you're not going to get anywhere the second one uh with all respect uh brad due respect um the second one is lying they lie uh on two occasions one they lie when they do the 180 formula (laughs) they come up with things that i hadn't even dreamed of like hey i was a runner in high school so i added 10 no 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 it doesn't doesn't work that way um, oh no, I'm I'm not on medication. Well, I take these three medicines, but they don't affect my heart rate uh, or whatever. And then they lie about their uh, their their training. I, I I never go over my MAF heart rate. I always warm up and cool down, uh, and, and and all these other things that they're not uh, willing to divulge. So um, that's that's number two. That and and between the two of them, that's pretty much all. The things yep. that block that natural we're talking about natural progress, natural progression of human physiology. This is what's supposed to happen. There's no uh, 
oh, I don't, you know, MAF doesn't work for me because I'm different. <laughs> well, if you're from Mars, that's certainly possible. And if you're a gorilla, that's possible. Let's check. <laughs> oh, nope, you're not a gorilla. Uh, you know, so, you know, we're, we're talking about natural progress. And if it doesn't occur, there's something that's usually obviously wrong. So I'm going to try a visual analogy out on you guys and feel free to correct me because when I teach people metabolic concepts, I like to use a lot of imagery. So I'm going to take a cell right now and let's take, I'm going to make this cell a fitness center. Okay. And Brad is my trainer. So Brad did a evaluation of me. He said, Ron, you've got good upper body strength, but your legs are really weak. So I want you to work out in the leg portion of the gym to get your legs stronger. But every time I go to the gym, I end up going to the upper body section and doing something else. So I'm definitely not making progress, okay? So now let's think of our cell as being a cellular fitness center. And we've got the mitochondria, and then we've got the cytosol. So the mitochondria is a site where we do aerobic fat metabolism, where we're really seeing all the benefits. But then we got the cytosol, where we obviously have some benefits, but that's literally me working out on my upper body. So if we're going to be kind of organelle-specific, we want to get the most bang for the buck by working out the mitochondria part of the gym, basically, right? Because that's where we see maximal fat oxidation. We increase energy production. We reduce disease production. But whenever we walk into that gym, like both of you highlighted, people get hooked on the anaerobic section, the cytosol portion of the gym. And my theory behind that is because we're all hooked on adrenaline. So one thing a patient told me when he complained that I took the joy out of his workouts, it literally says, you know, I'm getting warmed up and I'm feeling good. And at that point, you're having me scale back. And literally, to get graphic, it almost sounded like he was describing sex. Like, I'm getting to the point where I'm sweaty. I'm feeling great. I'm about to anaerobically climax. And Phil's telling me, no, I got to pull back at that time. So it's kind of a graphic analogy, but he kept that in his head for the rest of his life. He's like, okay, I've really got to track my heart rate because if I leave it to my own devices, this isn't going to work. But is that a sort of a way to think about it if we were to break it down to mitochondria versus cytosol? Sure, it, it, it is. and and But there's there's a, a missing component that's very important, which is that the, the mitochondria, the, the fat-burning component are associated with these aerobic muscle cells, which in the human body, they're intertwined with the anaerobic power muscle fibers. And those, an those aerobic muscle cells are very well endowed with circulation. So if you turn those red aerobic slow twitch muscle cells on, they burn more fat, they support the joints, they do all this great stuff, like you mentioned, but they do one other very important thing, which is to bring more blood supply to share with those anaerobic muscle, mm. those power muscle fibers. And those power muscle fibers, they're, they're, all, they're sitting there waiting to work any time. We don't even have to train them. Mm. Our, 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 our sympathetic nervous system, uh, you know, get behind somebody and scare them. You know, if there's an 80-year-old who's kind of bent over and moving slow, you know, he'll jump up and you know, because that that's what the autonomic nervous system is built for. And as long as we're alive, that thing, for the most part, is ready to turn on. And um, so our aerobic system actually helps our an anaerobic system in that in that way very significantly. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for bridging that gap between both sections. Now, if we were to take my average metabolically sick, insulin-resistant person who's never exercised before, who's dying to do anaerobic workouts, but what would basically be your overall approach to somebody that's really been a couch potato their whole life? 
Well, generally, uh, I would I would get them doing something, and mm-hmm. and you know, part of the the deal is that you need to change habits. So there's a mental component about habit changes. So instead of coming home, grabbing a a big bag of chips and sitting on the couch, you're going to go and do some exercise. And it almost doesn't matter what the person does because they're trying to change their habits. And yeah, it takes two weeks. It takes whatever. But um, the safest way to do that is to just start walking. It's such an easy, powerful, effective very good aerobic workout that's almost fail safe. I say almost because some of these people, as you know, um, walking at a moderate pace would, would put their heart rate higher than yeah. their MAF heart rate. So sure. you've got to be careful. I've seen that way too many times. Um, but, but walking very conservative uh, would be the, uh, an ideal place to start, and almost everybody can do that. Such a good point. You know what I face here in Silicon Valley are these folks that are sedentary and then their companies sponsor some sort of boot camp or a running group. So they literally go from zero to 90 with nothing in, in between. Luckily, more and more companies are adding walking programs. But but what are the risks of going from zero to 90 in someone who's never exercised before and all of a sudden they're doing boot camps and running groups? And Well, one one risk is death. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. you know, come on. This is this is. This is serious stuff. You know, we've been cursed by Benjamin Franklin uh, over 200 years ago, who came up with this thing. He didn't come up with it, probably came from biblical origins, but he came up with this thing called no pain, no gain. Mm-hmm. And, and we are, he was applying it to economics, but, we, you know, since the 50s, we've been applying it to uh to exercise and everybody has taken turns at uh implementing this mantra you know from jane fonda to um runner's world magazine and and uh tv commercials uh you know sports uh announcers i mean if you're a 10 year old kid and you're watching uh, a sports uh game on tv and the announcer says well that's big joe he plays hurt, and Big Joe has all these bandages wrapped around his body. <laughs> right. You know, as a 10-year-old, you want to do that. You want to play hurt. You want bandage. Give me some bandages. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the sickness that no pain, no gain has, has brought us from a, from a social standpoint. This is true herd mentality, which is a, a, a mental condition that uh, gets us in trouble. So true. You know, the other thing I think that confuses the issue is the word burn. So when people are thinking about burning fat or burning calories, they like to feel the burn in their muscles, which is clearly the point where they're way beyond the MAP heart rate. But I find that struggle with women and men all the time, where they feel like naturally when their muscles are burning, they're actually burning fat and getting more work done. Wow. You know, Ron, I have not related fat burning to the burn, the infamous burn. Thanks for bringing that up. Wow. Um, I, 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 this is great. Um, I'm not sure what I, I need to do with that. Maybe it's an article. Um, yeah. But you're right. Uh, this is where, you know, and the talk about Jane Fonda feeling the burn. Um, uh, gosh, what do we, you know, fat oxidation is such a dirty word to the average person because they don't know <laughs> what that means. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you're so right. much of this. 
is language though you're right because you know brad and i when we when i wrote the book it was you know cholesterol plaques for example right connecting that to dietary cholesterol body fat being connected to dietary fat and i see the same sort of issue with sort of that burn you know just really feeling like you get that work done so it's something i have to sort of train my patients around but you've been you've been so great at sort of rechanging re this language you might come up with a great way to sort of reapproach that well, well. Uh, it's the better burn it's the better. Yeah, right. Yeah. Brad, you're the, you're the marketing. Yeah, Brad, Brad is the master at these analogies. Brad, any ideas? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I think that <laughs> the, the, um, the idea that you're burning the most fat per minute at your math heart rate is something that a lot of people can embrace and buy into because they're trying to lose excess body fat. And I think that's the great lie and the great tragedy of the fitness industry is that these people are working hard to burn calories and it simply doesn't work. And it's now being proven. Uh, I like the, the recent book by Dr. Jason Fung, The Obesity Code, where he references a lot of studies that uh, caloric expenditure does not really equate with a reduction of excess body fat. You just eat more food the more you work out if you're doing it in the inappropriate manner that most people are doing with this overly stressful approach. And so, you know, thinking about becoming a better fat burner through your workouts and then enjoying those benefits 24 seven is, you know, is the key to, uh, you know, breaking through from these metabolic risk factors that we have. And, you know, Phil, you mentioned your first marathon and seeing the, uh, the, the unhealthy people there. Um, we, we referenced this stat in a recent book, uh, 30% of the participants in the Cape town marathon were classified as, uh, overweight, obese category. And that's the same exact percentage as the global population, according to World Health Organization. So in other words, the spectators on the street in Cape Town watching the marathon runners, they're indistinguishable uh, with their body composition. So there's a, there's a problem there. There's, a, uh, there's something wrong with the equation when uh, the, the spectators clapping for you look the same as you. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> so two, two quick comments. One on, on the calorie uh, deception um yeah we we it's a huge deception that we've been f led to believe for for decades um many decades uh who cares how many calories you burn what's important is how many fat calories you burn if you're burning a lot of sugar calories obviously it's not going to help you and the 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 overfat athletes um well, gosh, that, that'll take us on a, on a long tangent. But just the the the, the performance, uh, the reductions in running performance in the last twenty five years is so dramatic. Mm -hmm. Except for those first uh, lead pack runners, for example, um, the running times have been going down more and more over the last twenty five years, which happens to correlate with the rise in the overfat pandemic, not just in people who are overweight or obese, but many people who are normal weight and non-obese are still overfat because mm -hmm. they have excess body fat. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking from this discussion, maybe the burning we should equate more to inflammation because we clearly see so much, so many injuries in people yep. that are training anaerobically so much, right? And that ends up stopping sure. quite a that's bit. That's a good, yeah. That's a that's a good component as well. That's that's part of my article. We could write one together. Actually. Yeah, it sounds like we could. <laughs> um, you know what 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 is the burn? Well, the burn <laughs> could mean this, and it could mean that. Um, but yeah, the injury component. Um, 
people people don't understand it. They they don't understand the simple component, which is if you eat sugar, it's going to promote inflammation, and it's yeah. and you keep eating sugar, so it's not just inflammation; it's chronic inflammation. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, and you can you can hurt your knee, and that's understandable. But this stuff can also hurt your feelings. I'm here to tell you, man. When you when you when you're out there working hard and and dutifully going to the gym and meeting with your trainer and wanting to drop those inches or or just get in shape, and it it doesn't work, and you you suffer from breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury, you start to get discouraged. You start to get negative, and even if it's not. Uh, you know, even if you're not conscious of it, you drive by the gym and you get a, a nervous response. Like, I don't want to go in there because that's the source of pain and suffering. Uh, and it, it's such a wonderful awakening. And, you know, fr from, from myself, who was a young athlete who was dedicating my whole life to the sport and every ounce of energy I had to be able to slow down and, and monitor my heart rate and realize I had a, a bigger purpose and I was building my health rather than just being this, this machine that was getting whipped like a, like a jockey whipping the horse too hard. And then, you know, in my years of coaching other people, uh, you know, it takes a lot of convincing. It takes a lot of buy-in from the person. But to realize that fitness can be fun and energizing and you can finish the workout with a smile on your face, oh my gosh, I mean, that's, that's the greatest breakthrough that we've been waiting for for decades because right now the fitness, mm. the fitness industry is one of massive attrition and marketing manipulation to bring in uh, another group of people for this year's marathon training group because all the other people uh, are, are done and back on the couch where they started. So yeah, and, 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 and it's to, to get out of that social scene, that mentality, that no pain, no gain mentality, the burn, the, you know, whatever – um, we have to retrain people. And that's, you know, my, my whole idea of heart monitoring, heart rate monitoring was, uh, let's, let's find a biofeedback tool that's objective that we can use to retrain people mentally because, uh, they're stuck over here. We want them over here where they're going to get healthy and improve their performance without, uh, crashing. So that heart rate uh, component, it, it, it really guides the process quite well. Yeah. You know, one thing I'll say is um, we're recording this during the time of the pandemic. This has been the one, you know, event that has actually forced some of my most stubborn patients to actually not be wedded to fitness centers and intense group exercise classes. I'm not going to mention names, but we all know all the studios out there that are competing based on who's got the highest heart rate. And now as a result of the pandemic, they're walking, they're hiking, and they're losing record amounts of body fat, just like you would predict. Their inflammation numbers are going down and they're not getting injured. So, so I think they're going to take that as a lesson. Are, are you going to rejoin that fitness center after this? But this I, might Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, uh, at least it, I hope so, because that's, that's, you know, those are clear outcomes in these uh, individuals that, um, you know, but that, that attraction it's like sugar addiction, you know? Totally. You stop eating sugar and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm not eating that stuff anymore. Well, walk past a bakery and tell me you're not looking and tasting <laughs> what you see in the window. Um, yeah. But you're right. The, these, these times uh, where people are going to go by themselves and work out and not be influenced by their peers, nobody's watching them, and so they don't have to look good and look like they're running way faster than they should be <laughs> right um at a time at, at you know at a time when junk food sales are skyrocketing mm. junk food 
companies are so happy to see COVID because they're, they were, they were starting to say, Hey guys, we're losing business. These keto people, these low carb people, these, uh, what's that other silly one? Gluten intolerance, you know, that crowd, they're all taking our business away. Uh, How are we going to, how are we going to hand and bang, here comes COVID people panic shop. People can't go anywhere to buy food except drive-throughs, which means junk food places. Um, they they hoard food because it's the end of the world, and we need to hoard food that's going to last forever. Junk food, uh, and so people have become more unhealthy and and literally more overfat as a result of um, this this lockdown and uh, the. Of course, as we alluded to uh, at the top of this uh, this gig, is that that um, the overfat condition predisposes one to getting COVID nineteen, getting the infection, because it's among the things overfat does is makes us more vulnerable to infectious disease. Yeah, so true. You know, uh, on the um, topic of other common myths and misperceptions, we talked about sort of nasal breathing. I want to ask you guys both of this. The other obviously big popular movement that's been around for a long time that my patients gravitate to is shortcuts to working out. So can I do a 10-minute HIIT workout, which would equal a 20, 25, or 30-minute aerobic session? And even I got sucked into that, Phil, early on. We're always doing predominantly HIIT workouts based on all the press around that. And then when I went out to try to play basketball with my kids, I would get winded. I saw no improvement in aerobic (laughs) performance at all. So then, you know, as I looked at the studies, is it just that these studies are are done in people that are already aerobically fit and they see additional benefit? Because in my metabolically sick sick population, doing short hit workouts is not sufficient. So I wanted to get both your perspectives on that. Yeah, the studies are are not valid because they're looking at a tiny snapshot of this person. Uh, And even if they're not aerobically fit, um, I used to joke to to athletes, you know, if you want to get really, really good. If you want to get fast as a runner, uh, overtrain week by week, but know when you're going to fall apart and arrange it so that your big race is right before you fall apart and you'll be in great shape. Well, um, that, that's a nice theory. It's, it's not very practical and it's, uh, an example of fit, but unhealthy. Mm. Um, uh, the, these studies are really, really uh, short, and um, I, I've, I've seen this work uh, with people in doing a consult. Yeah, I did this for, you know, for, for about a month, and then um, I didn't do anything for another, you know, it just, it, 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 it's the long term. We're in the game for the long term. We're not, you know, we're not saying, well, I'm only going to live for another year, so I'm going to do all these things. We're in it for the long run and we want health and fitness long term so that when we get to be old farts, we could be (laughs) really well and we can be working out as we want and we can be enjoying life and not decrepit. So uh, that's the name of the game. And all these studies are are really, really short term. So they measure people before and after it, you know, what, four weeks, three weeks, six weeks. Yeah, uh, you could do anything to somebody, and you're going to improve um, something that you that you that you measure. And again, what you'll find if you monitor your your heart rate, 
uh, that which most of these don't do is that after six weeks of doing that, your MAF test or however you measure it actually is going to get worse. Mm. Yep. So true. And also connected to that is weight training. Cause you know, it, when, when you go sort of on the Google search, people can find whatever workout they want and they can find the yeah. studies to support it. But there is a camp out there that says weight training is aerobic. So, you know, we can just do weight training. And I might've perpetuated some of this because in my Asian, Asian Indian population, I sort of came up with, you know, the visual of we have smaller parking lots. We tend to have smaller legs. We can't store as much glycogen. So they're all like, great, I can just squat my way out of metabolic syndrome. But clearly that's not enough either, right? It seems like aerobic has to be a mandatory part of this it, equation. It does because because humans are made to be endurance animals. We are endurance animals. And if we don't fulfill that, um, our genes uh, uh, are, are geared to it and we, we, we fall apart. Um, the strength is a very important thing. The, the uh, aerobic deficiency is so prevalent all over the world, but so is weakness, muscle weakness. And we could, and muscle weakness and muscle mass are two different things. They they may go together, but they may not. Mm -hmm. um, weakness uh, is is thought of as something. Okay, well, we need to build strength. We need to lift heavy weights and get bulky. Uh, yeah. But that's a problem for many people because if you're running a five k or a ten k pounds, you're going to slow down, uh, yeah. and so. Um, part of the weight problem, the weight lifting workout problem is that we, we lift on Monday and now we, we become weak. Literally we become weak. That's the recovery process. Uh, the muscles fatigue. That's the idea of weightlifting. You, you lift until you're fatigued. Okay. Now you're fatigued. You're fatigued for 24 48, maybe 72 hours. And in that fatigue recovery window, we are now weak. So now there's this weakness window. And if we work out in that weakness window, we're vulnerable to getting injured because our muscles can't support our joints very well. And um, that's, a, that's a big problem. So if you, if you do two or three weight workouts a week, yeah, where are you going to find time to fit anything else? So true. Yeah, yeah, the workouts are all mediocre because you're constantly in a recovery mode yeah. rather than feeling great. And I think that's the biggest misunderstanding with intensity in general. And I'm thinking of your patients again, Dr. Ron, where maybe they want to go and, and uh, look good and build some muscle and uh, you know do some heavy stuff. And so they sign up for a, a CrossFit workout that lasts for an hour. And I am a big believer in, in intensity and the, and the benefits and the, and the pleasure that I get from sprinting and high jumping and doing things like that. But I've had to learn the hard way from my endurance athlete mentality that a very short duration session is the most appropriate and it's going to deliver the most benefits rather than going out there and doing these repeats. And you mentioned HIT. Um, Dr. Craig Marker has an answer to that called HURT. It's a great uh, article you can Google. It says HIT versus HURT. And HURT is high intensity repeat training rather than interval training because an interval implies that you're trying again and again to when the clock strikes 
at the top, you want to repeat the same performance eight times. So we're doing eight sprints of 30 seconds at the end of our spin class, pretending we're going to win the Tour de France each time. And at the end, the person is, is exhausted and glycogen depleted and craving sugar, and they go to Jamba Juice and uh, eat more calories than they just burned during the workout. But if you can condense these efforts, and Phil, you call it slow weights, where you go over and do a couple sets uh, mm-hmm. in the middle of your busy day, and that, that doesn't have yeah. to, you don't have to write it in your logbook as an impressive thing, but if you can put your body under resistance load and do these very short duration efforts as part of your overall fitness program, you're not going to compromise your aerobic development. You're not going to get overly stressed and into these breakdown patterns. And you, you uh, described it earlier in the show where you said the aerobic muscle fibers are intertwined and in helping to uh, oxidate the anaerobic fibers to fire. So you're, you're benefiting your sprint performance even when you're out there hiking and doing long stuff. And then sure. if you do have a high-intensity goal, like you're a basketball player, you're trying to beat up on your sons, as I know Dr. <laughs> Ron is trying to still, but um, you know, a workout that lasts seven minutes or something like that, that doesn't tire you out, that just builds a little bit of explosiveness and works on your technique. And then you, then you bag it and go home. So uh, there's a plug for sneaking out the side door if you're a CrossFit listener right now at, at the 21 minute mark. I mean, I've done several of those workouts and I enjoy them. I love the creativity. You climb up the rope, you jump off the box, you do it this, you do that. But I did have that inclination that I wanted to, I was begging to receive a text message so I could sneak out the back door at the halfway mark. <laughs> Because that's when I had, I put out a lot of energy. I, I you know, I, I, I gave my effort, and everything after that point was sort of the bell curve sliding down the other way into uh, exhaustion and depletion. All right, so I got to ask you guys: if I do want to take a nibble of that anaerobic cupcake, maybe once a week or so, when can I earn? This is what I get. Do I never get to run as hard as I want? Like, is there a certain point where we can add that in strategically? Sure, without a doubt. Um, I do it. Um, I'm, I'm not a competitive athlete anymore, although I, I, I once in a while drift into that dream. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, we, we, we need that. What's important first is to develop the aerobic system. And if you clear the, the table and only put aerobic workouts on it, you'll build that aerobic system quickly, faster than any other way. And, and in, in a very solid way. And once you've done that, and it could take three, four, five, six months, uh, depending on how bad off you were to begin with. And once you've done that, now you could start uh, saying, well, let's see, what, what do I want to do now? What do I feel like doing? I feel like, you know, going to the track and doing some of these um, higher intensity uh, uh-huh. workouts. Or I, I feel like jumping into a 10K uh, which, you know, I, I did a study in my clinic. I had 229 runners, seasoned runners who spent three to six months building a base, no training over their math heart rate. They jumped into a, uh, 5k, 76%, uh, ran a personal best wow. uh, in seasoned athletes off just base training. So, um, uh, sure. And during your base training, you can't do the, the fatiguing weights because that will uh, create more stress hormone. That'll have that uh, weakness window where you really shouldn't be doing much of anything. So instead, you do those slow weights where you lift higher weight, less reps. You never fatigue mm. and you get stronger without building muscle bulk. And so you could do that anytime all year round if you want. 
So for metabolically sick people, that off-season, so again, I'm thinking about my folks because there truly is a great social component to running groups and group exercise, although we know there's that herd mentality, but literally over the winter time, I can discipline them to build that base. In somebody who's pretty you know, metabolically sick and not really athletic, three, four months, would that be enough to maybe pop into and build up enough space where they can start running with their groups after that? Or do you find these individuals need a much longer time just given the fact that it, they don't it have depends on the It depends on the person. So if you go three months and if you've become faster and faster each month, yeah, and now you're, you're left with, okay, do I do some harder training, higher heart rate training, in which case I could hit a plateau, that's yeah. the issue. Mm -hmm. um, or should I keep getting these aerobic benefits, keep losing body fat, keep getting faster? And most people, when they understand the choices, they say, I want to keep getting faster. Yeah. I'm going to keep doing the, the slower work. And, um, and yeah, sometimes I complain I'm going too fast. And, you know, this is really a lot of fun. And if they want to jump into a race, that's not going to hurt anything. Yeah, uh, and they will often surprise themselves, which gives them a real picture of human physiology. Mm. We're, 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 you know, these these races are endurance races. We we burn a lot of fat, or we should, in these races. And so, the more fat burning we have, the better we're going to race. And we don't forget how to race. We don't forget how to run fast. Yeah, uh, and I, I I'd say every pro athlete I've worked with who we've, we've stopped their, their training from what it was and put them on this base and the training slow. And three, four, five, six months later, I say, okay, let, let's jump into this race. How am I going to know how to race? How, how do I know how fast? Your brain already knows. Just go to the starting line. When you hear that big bang, you know, go. Right. The brain will kick in and do what it's supposed to. That's awesome. Well, yeah. this, uh, this yep. exciting new concept dates back to 1960 when Peter Snell of New Zealand, uh, training under the great Arthur Lydiard, uh, stepped onto the track and, and broke the world record in the 800 meters. Forget about the 5K. This guy ran a one minute, 44 second, 800 coming right off base training where they were running massive miles per week and running on the sand dunes and, and working on strength, working on strength. Instead of, you know, back in that day, it was the, the runners would circle the track until they puked uh, to prepare <laughs> for the track season. And, you know, his time of 144 back in 1960 still qualifies for every sing single Olympic final since then in the 800. So it's a world-class wow. time that dates back 60 years wow. and, yep. you know, proven that this, you know, this over distance approach. And I think, you know, we, we haven't progressed as far as we, we should. Phil was mentioning the, the slowing of the times. I mean, it's great that the marathons have more participants. New York City has 50,000 runners now, but they're generally an hour slower than they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago when, um, when the, uh, the running boom first started. Yeah. You know, I think one thing both of you highlighted is, you know, in my practice, unfortunately, when patients are referred to me, they're already diabetic or have an advanced stage of insulin resistance. So part of my passion has been to really teach people to identify these issues as early as possible. So Brad and I, we know, let's look at waist circumference, so let's look at triglycerides. But if we were to even actually look earlier into pre-pre-pre-diabetes, 
what we find is aerobic resistance is so strongly correlated to insulin resistance. And here in Silicon Valley, where I see kids and teenagers or parents that were sedentary, there's gestational diabetes. We often find that these kids are extremely sedentary. I literally have talked to PE teachers where kids are um, bringing in notes that they don't want to run the mile because they just can't do it. But I kind of wanted to shift focus uh, for the remainder of the time in terms of, you know, what parents can do, especially in this pandemic. There's no organized sports, nothing. But really, are these early harbingers or future insulin resistance when kids themselves are getting breathless from just running 800 meters? Sure. Uh, combine that with the with the additional um, consumption of junk food, and oh, it's a it's a it's a disaster, uh, which is not unlike the disasters we've been living with for the last forty years. Mm. Um, uh, in fact, the um, the study I did on o- the overfat prevalence in the U.S. the CDC data that I had access to showed two interesting things. One is exercise prevalence was increasing. Mm-hmm. People were doing more aerobic work and more weight work, but the overfat numbers were getting worse at the same time. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is the food uh, dictates your exercise quality because it, it, it either turns on or off fat burning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not fat burning and you're doing the exercise properly, it's not going to help. Yeah. And then just a more specific question, math heart rate training for kids. I think I came across an article where you mentioned maybe 160, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more for how kids should be monitoring their heart rates if they yeah, should. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I recommend 165 for kids okay. that, are, that are 16 and under. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and then when, when you get to 65 and older, I, I recommend you need to make some modifications. And the reason those recommendations are there is because in my years of practice early on when I was gathering data and figuring all this stuff out there weren't many runners who were even age 60 and over Mm. you know I I remember I had one runner who was 60 in in that group of 229 that I that I tested and he was like an enigma like well you see this he's running like you know a 48 minute 10k at 60 that's like amazing um and i didn't have a lot of kids because um i i I didn't uh they were they were in in a gym class they were in sports and they were told what to do and there was nothing i could do to help and in those situations where they were really messing themselves up bad physically or biochemically or both uh mentally um I would encourage the parents to take him out of sports, go through this rehab process, and then we can put a heart monitor on them and 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 look at look at the data. But I didn't have a lot of those. That was a tough sell, um, and so I didn't have a lot to go by. And I sort of made that recommendation just based on clinical uh, instincts. That's amazing. Hey, so I want to close off with one area. I know it's a big topic, but I'll get a little bit more specific on it. And it's really the area of stress. Um, One of the questions I ask a lot of my patients are whether they have any hobbies. And it's amazing how so many of them don't. Their hobby is working 
um, around the clock and maybe they used to do music and everything. But as, as I was researching you, Phil, a bit more, you're quite the accomplished musician. I mean, you've even had some records produced by the great Rick Rubin. Um, so I just wanted to know how that influences sort of the work that you do, because I live in an area where people are trying to find the next greatest idea, but they're burning their candle 24-7. They've disconnected with their hobbies. Can you talk about maybe hobbies and the role music's played in your entrepreneurship and your career? Sure. And, and it isn't music necessarily, um, but, but I woke up in 2002 at the peak of my, my career um, with a passion. And it wasn't just a passion. It was a real passion. It was like, you know, somebody picked me up and shook me and said, hey, you, you are a songwriter. Okay, um, heavy, heavy stuff. And, and I paced around the house for four days and said, what, what do I do? I'm, I'm a songwriter now. Okay, I don't even know what a songwriter does other than write songs. I'm not a guitar player. I don't know anything about the piano or, or, or singing. Um, I just knew that it was a passion that I had to follow. And I realized uh, I had to... I had to quit my career, and I did. And uh, uh, a couple of days later, I get a, a call from one of my uh, publishers, one of my editors. He says, oh, this, this guy keeps calling, wanting to consult with you. I said, look, just tell him I don't do that anymore because I just became a, a songwriter. And he said, oh, you became a songwriter. You might want to call this guy. His name is Rick Rubin. <laughs> wow. And so I called Rick, and we had this really great discussion. He said, I want to consult with you. I just read one of your books. I said, well, I don't do that anymore. I just became a songwriter. <laughs> and we, you know, we, yeah, we laughed, and we talked for a couple hours and agreed that he would help me, and I would help him with his health, and we're still doing that today. It's amazing. So it was a, it was a and you know, I tell that story when I, when I do my music and the brain uh, lecture. I tell that story. And I sometimes see people in the audience, and sometimes they verbalize this. They say, I wish I could do that. Mm. Well, what are we waiting for? Exactly. You know, um, uh, time's a-wasting. Um, we, we need to find a passion. And it doesn't have to be music or art. It has to be your passion. What are your passions? I often ask people, what are your passions? And they say, well, I, I don't really have any passions. Well, you do. What are they? Well, I, I, you know, I, I always wanted to paint. But, you know, I've got to work until I retire. And then I'm going to collect. You know, then I'm, come on. Totally. Um, hey, so that, you young listeners, a, listen up, young listeners. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I have, um, I improved, as a result of the music, I improved my writing, my, my general mm. writing ability, my research, technical writing ability. Totally agree. Um, I, wrote, uh, I wrote some fiction work, which I never, you know, never had done and always wanted to, but never knew what to do. Um, and just turned my brain on more than ever. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I can't describe the, the joy and the happiness that I get out of, out of songwriting, whether I'm performing, uh, or, or not like now with COVID, um, I just recorded a, a new album, which will be my eighth album. Wow. And, um, so it, it's been, 
It's been a wonderful ride. And I obviously eventually got back into health and fitness, partly because I was in the studio with with another musician and I was helping someone doing an EEG on this, on this musician. And I'm telling him, I'm, 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 I'm so excited because I just recorded this song. I said, hey, I want to I play this song for you. And I didn't realize that he was all hooked up and that <laughs> his waves were there. And so I go turn the song on and we're listening. And I happen to look over and these massive alpha waves on the screen from this guy. And his brain was predicting what the song was going to do before the chord changes took place. And I was just, I said, cool. I, I, I got to get back into this stuff. <laughs> and I did, and 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 here I am. Yeah, totally. That, that was great. I think that's the upside of technology is you can learn almost any skill so fast now. I mean, you learn three chords and you'll find a hundred songs online that you can play. So, so for everyone out there, really, they should use all these tools, whether it's Duolingo to learn a language. But we've got incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know the 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 reality for me was uh, I knew I knew about music. I studied it in 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 Chinese medicine. Uh, I was a consumer of music uh, beginning, you know, as a young kid, you know, the 60s. You, oh, you have to be a, a music consumer if you're real. And, and um, I realized that I didn't have a young moldable brain in 2002, <laughs> believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, I need to... F- figure this music stuff out like quickly because all the all the musicians I knew up to that point um, were, were, were you know they had the same story like how'd you get to be so good well when I was 10 years old my mother gave me a guitar and you know I, I well I, I don't have a 10 year old brain so how can I get to that point which you really never can but how could I jump over these roadblocks that are, are, are going to be in the way. And I did it by realizing that music was numbers. It's just music is math. Right. And if you just count, if you can count from one to four, I, I teach a course um, or I teach a, a thing in the music of the brain course where I, I teach people how to play all the, on the piano, how to play all the major and minor chords and all the major and minor scales in three minutes and they never forget. And nice. that's because m- music is math. And, you know, way back when, the, the, when, when classical music started, it was, the, it was the, the snobs, the upper class snobs that said, well, music is only for us intellectuals. And so <laughs> all the rest of you who are folkies, you know, you can't participate. We're going to control music. And we're going to make it so difficult that you can't learn it. And unfortunately, they do the same thing today. They make it so complicated yep. hmm. that um, people study scales for years. Mm-hmm. And, and they say, yeah, I've been studying scales for you know, seven years. Oh, well, well, can you play this song? Oh, I, I can't play it. I, I can't play anything. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Hey, last thing, I, I don't want to forget to talk about this. So I've tried these babies after the last few days. And these oh, are the, the, the earbuds. Yes, I the have earbuds right here. Yes. 
<laughs> My gosh. And I got to say that this has been a game changer for me for a few reasons. Number one, it's the first set of headphones that actually stays in my ear because I've got small ear entry points and even the AirPod Pros do not stay in my ear. So it was wonderful to be able to work out and not have. Yeah, yeah. The, the HR Plus um, is, you know, they have a whole bunch of options for sizing yeah. and you can either, diff, you know, you could have different sized ears left and right, which most people do, but it's not yeah. that important. But yeah, you can get them to fit really, really well. But unlike the AirPods, it's got the shark fin too. And the shark fin, it really yep. is really what keeps it inside. But yep. the brilliant thing, people, about these earbuds is that they're measuring my heart rate. And, you know, the inner ear heart rate is as accurate as EKG sensor heart rate. So you're getting really valuable feedback in real time without putting on a chest strap, having to look at my watch or my phone. And I just did this workout this morning. And as much as I've been preaching this to my patients, there were times where I felt like I was in my zone. And sure enough, I heard the whistle and the coach saying, you're above that zone. So even for me, it was, it was a really great training tool. So hats off to you and the team for really putting this out. I think it's a Thanks. game changer. Thanks. Yeah, we, we, we've worked hard to get this out and we're still um, putting the, we've got the app associated with it, but we're still uh, building that app so that there's a whole lot more stuff. But you can, you, you know, it, it's Bluetooth compatible. So you, you could do a lot of, uh, other technologies uh, with it. But it's really, you know, I, I, people always say, well, what kind of music should I listen to when I work out? And um, is it okay to make phone calls? You know, can I conduct business? Well, no, I don't want you listening to anything. I want you to listen to your body Agreed. because that's where it's at. But people are not going to do that. So the, the, the HR Plus earbuds have a great sound for music. And Okay, if you have to get a stupid phone call while you're working out, they're really, really great uh, for that as well. And so, um, I'm 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 happy with them myself. And I've 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 uh, I am a uh, a history of heart monitor person. I started using the 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 monitors that these cardiac monitors, like I mentioned, before the wireless straps came out. And then the wireless straps really haven't changed in, in yeah. all of these decades. But the, the HR Plus is, is the big leap forward. So it's, yeah, we're, we're very happy. Well, my main request is I want to change the voice option to have your voice or Brad Kern's voice as the voice coach. We, we, so. we will be doing that. Uh, <laughs> and we might even be putting my music on it. I was uh, just going to say. You could, you could do that now uh, via your phone. Right. That'd be amazing. And all the, all the music on my website is free to listen to and download. So you Love can do it. that right now on those, on those earbuds. That'd be awesome. Well, this has been an honor. I've loved this, Brad. Thank you for connecting us. And, and Phil, I want to tell you that I think really getting people, I mean, I'm going to get a little, bit, a little bit spiritual and big picture here, but getting people to really connect to their greatest coach is really their heart, right? When they work out, being able to listen to their heart, when they do their work, really connecting that inner side and really working out in this way is different. Brad, you've taught this to me from the beginning, but you finish these workouts and you've got just the right amount of energy so you can get through your day at the maximum capacity. You're not going to crash in a few hours, but I think you know what you've done really, just putting metabolics aside, just even personally, spiritually, you've really redefined workouts using these sorts of tools. So on behalf of my audience and myself, just really want to thank you for your great work. Thanks, Ron. I, I appreciate you and, and what you have done. And, and, uh, and Brad, thanks for, for hooking us up. Um, this has been a real, real treat for me.
right? Oh my gosh. Listeners, go to culturalhealthsolutions.com and learn more about Dr. Sinha, incredible blog articles. And I think philmaffetone.com is where we can get the earbuds and all your your great articles and uh, subscribing to the newsletters. So I encourage the listeners to to connect with both these guys. And uh, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for your great work. Keep it up. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the Primal Path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.